0: of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the funkiest string players in the world. My name is Matt Bell, and I'm your host. This podcast is called Rockstar Violinist, but this time it's a rockstar jazz cellist and bass player we'll be hanging with. Greg Byers is one of the most electrifying cellists I've ever seen live. The first time I saw him perform was at the Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp in Olathe, Kansas, and he completely blew my mind. I'm pretty sure there's video of that somewhere, and I really hope it surfaces at some point. He's not only an outstanding player, he's also a top-notch performer, a fantastic composer, an amazing singer, and a highly sought teacher. By the way, if you're enjoying these interviews, please subscribe and give us a five-star review and leave an encouraging comment on whatever platform you're listening on. You have no idea how much that helps. We are listening to his tune, Co-Calypso, right now. We'll hear some more of this tune in a few minutes, but let's get right into the meat of this conversation with Greg Byers, rock star cellist. We were just at the ASTA conference uh, a couple months ago now. And it was an incredible all-star performance. Rachel Barton Pine uh, headlined the whole thing, and she invited a bunch of players to come up and hang out with her on stage. And then the next night, uh, Ross Holmes was hosting a jam for Daddario, and a bunch of cats get up on stage for that. Um, And we just had some great hangs. It's, It's really a lot of fun to hang out with super talented people.
1: It's something that a lot of people talk to me as a musician, and they say, "Greg, you know, why aren't you going to Nam, right? Nam and Nam is is a great conference in a lot of ways, but it's such a different uh, vibe and attitude. And I think that you know, I, I am an educator, so it does make sense for me to go to a music education conference. But also as as a performer, um, there are a lot of great performer educators there. And so the the people that congregate at at that conference are just some of my favorite people in the world, and it's one of the reasons why I've been really trying to make it a point to go every single year. And uh, in fact, I've presented at the last three conferences. Uh, Last year was—or sorry, this year, um, a couple months ago, I did um, a a session on intermediate improvisation and just took one jazz tune, Beatrice, and really— broke down how you could uh, work on your rhythmic, melodic, and harmonic improvisation over a song like that. And so, you know, it's a great opportunity for me to talk about things like that to people that are really curious and don't necessarily understand how improvisation works in a, you know, organized form, you know, in a theoretical form. It's something that, you know, myself growing up as a string player, I didn't get that in Suzuki I didn't get that in my cello lessons. I got that from jazz classes, and I was the only ch- cellist there, you know? So, um, so, yeah, it's just a great place, and uh, I've already submitted several proposals for Orlando next year, so uh, hopefully I'll be there.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think there may be um, a really big hang in Orlando next year. I've been talking to Ross about that, and we may, uh, we may have some fun lined up. Are we going to crash it, Matt? Is that the plan? Crash it! I mean, you're gonna be it. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> that's that's still crashing it. That still counts as crashing it. That's the good news. That's the good news.
0: So yeah, we've actually attempted to do this interview before. We were hanging out at my house in Raleigh, and you were—I was taking you to a a uh, performance in South Carolina. We tried to record this thing in the car, and apparently my car is too dang noisy. So we're redoing this thing. Round um, two. Round 2 this will be 2.0 and uh we'll hope that we get all the kinks worked out. This is going to be really polished.
1: It's it's going to sound so good. That's the good news. We're, We're already on our that. way. No <laughs> interference. Just our smooth silky voices. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that was a that was a, a great Uh, Time last fall, you know, I was down there working with Mark Wood for an Electrify Your Strings program in Duncan, South Carolina, and just a a real treat anytime I get to do any of those. I really um, cherish the opportunity to get to work with these kids, to get to uh, help inspire them in a way that maybe I never got growing up. Uh, There were very few string players that were doing the non-traditional thing, the non-classical thing. Um, and num- nobody that I really latched onto on the cello specifically. And so the fact that I get to go in and be that crazy cellist, you know, that, that just, it makes me super happy. It's, it's so much fun. And then not only that, but, you know, I do understand the the pedagogical side of it too. So I can go in and really make some good suggestions about how to play this music and, in, in the right style and the right articulation and, uh, and just. You know, hopefully, hopefully make an impact in these kids' lives. You know, uh, I know music for me was a huge outlet as a child, um, and I know it is for a lot of kids today too. You know, to have that solace in in their instrument. Uh, so, yeah, that was it was a lot of fun. Uh, and um, thank you for having me again, even if this is the first time it airs. That's right. Well, <laughs> I mean,
0: I think you made a good point in the teaching. Is that I think a lot of people sort of mistake the improvisational world as, well, you know, they don't care about technique and they don't care about, you know, they just, they just want to make stuff up and, and it's, Mm -hmm. that's not what it is at all.
1: I think there's, um, a real intersection of being an entertainer and being a polished string musician. And I don't think those two things are separate. I think you can completely have both. And, like, let's look at, like, Joe denison one of our good friends. To me, he is a great violinist, solid technique, and yet his charisma and his sort of panache and his live performance, like, absolutely, you know, like, that, that engages people even if they're not going to, like, be wowed by, you know, however fast he's playing or whatever, um, and, and there are real examples of that. Of course, there are examples of like being hard to one side, and I don't want to name any names, but I can definitely think of violinists that are, and cellists and string players that are solely entertainers, you know what I mean? And then there are string players that are incredible musicians, but then you know, you see them, their stage presence is, um, is lacking, shall we say. Right. Right. And so I I think that's really important that to show, um, to everyone, not only just to, to students, but to everybody that this is, there can be legitimacy to performing in these art forms. And I think, you know, I think we encountered the same thing, even when it came to jazz and think about how long it took jazz to be considered an academic discipline, you know, um, and 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 so I think slowly, surely we're going to see academia uh, recognize that there can be, like I said, legitimacy in these styles. And my alma mater, actually University of Miami, very forward thinking, and is offering a lot of uh, new degrees in um, creative American music and these other sorts of styles where they're really encouraging um, kids to be performers, to be composers, to understand how to teach these stuff, to understand how to be an entrepreneur and make money in this field, you know? And that's something that, for me, took a while to figure out how to sell myself. That's kind of the opposite skill set of sitting in a room practicing scales all day, you know? So it's, it's, there's a lot to it now if you really wanna make this a full-time occupation. So um so yeah, a lot a lot of reasons why I enjoy doing that.
0: Alright, I promised some more coca calypso so here we go. When we had just done our interview last time, I think you had just gotten back from Poland, right?
1: Ah, yes. Uh huh. A couple months out of that. That's correct for the Zvignu Safer International Jazz Violin Competition.
0: And uh, that's a mighty big violin you got there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I hoisted it up on my shoulder and uh, played it like that for the whole competition. <laughs> no, um, it was a bit of a mess. It was a bit of a mess because my flight was delayed two days, which got me there less than 24 hours before I had to perform in the semifinals. And I had missed my rehearsal with the band that my accompanists. So, you know, we got to practice it a little bit, but it was kind of like a perfect storm of everything going sour. And, you know, that's fine because I really enjoyed my time there. I really enjoyed the experience um, all of the musicians, and I'm going to single out, um, you know, people like Mario Forte and Gabe uh, Terraciano, I believe is how you say his last name, um, and several other musicians, just really, really phenomenal human beings and great people and phenomenal musicians So much fun to work with and to meet and to see how improvisation and how jazz is being spread throughout the world and how it's still, you know, a relevant art form and how, you know, all these different string players are doing it. And that was the cool thing. Everybody was really talented and just had their own flavor to um, their own stuff and to the safer compositions that we were required, required to play, so... Um, It was super fun, and and it's funny you mention that because uh, this guy Gabe is actually coming to Minneapolis on Friday, somebody I met, Um, and he is somebody that – I believe he's out of the New York City area, a great musician, and um, yeah, excited to to hang out with him post-Poland. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and you know, something I've been sort of tossing around, you know, whether or not to, to go back, it's a, 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 the competition takes place every other year. So I have like another year before I need to actually figure out if I have to apply or not, if I want to do it again. So, um, we'll see, you know, part of me feels like I would love a shot at it where I was actually fully prepared. And especially now that I understand the competition, what they're looking for, I, I think I could, have have a much more successful approach at it, you
0: know. Right, and maybe you hitchhike, so you got a better chance of getting there on time. Uh,
1: you know, I don't want to know how long. Uh, I have never h- hitchhiked on the sea or on in the air. <laughs> you know, I feel like both of those are difficult to hitch. Where where do you you stick your thumb out at the port? I guess I would be it would be tough. It's
2: tough.
1: Uh, but um, no, I I definitely I always enjoy any chance to travel abroad. And, um, Poland was just a beautiful country and, um, getting to be at the Penderecki Center for Music out in the country. It was just beautiful and sweltering hot with no air conditioning. So it, it, the, it was kind of nice that I, I knew I was out, um, after the semifinals because then honestly, as the cellist, I just grabbed all the other violin players. I was like, we're jamming, we're playing music. We, I came all the way here, like, we're going to play even if we didn't win. Like, I want to just make music with people. And so I got to do that, and I got to be a little more relaxed of a schedule than perhaps the finalists, you know? Right. Yeah. So it was a great
0: experience. Yeah, that's awesome. So I do want to tell people you've got a project um, called Acoustic Cuisine, and it's one of the more creative things I've heard of, and I, I really – you know, I, I interview a lot of people for this podcast and and I had not heard anybody doing anything even remotely similar to this acoustic cuisine thing. And I'm I'm trying to get you down here to Raleigh because I like good music and I like good food and I'm lazy. Um, <laughs> I don't want to have to do any work. I just want people to bring me, entertain me. So um, that would be
1: that'd be a beautiful thing. I'd, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, w- I'm working on that and, uh, thank you for your help. Um, yeah, I'd love to, to talk about acoustic cuisine. It was a project that really has been years in the making. Um, I guess for a long time, I've always wanted to take sort of the two senses that I really gravitate towards. Um, because not only am I, uh, in love with music and obsessed with music and obviously a musician, but I love food. I'm a foodie and uh, it's something that whether or not you like food, you have to eat it. You have to eat, you know? And so since I've always thought, well, okay, if I'm going to have to eat something, I might as well eat something good, you know? And so what is good food? Well, that's a, a whole other story and a whole other question. But acoustic cuisine was really meant to just be Uh, a marriage of those two things. And I love this Thelonious Monk quote. um, Talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And with all respects to Thelonious Monk, I think I would watch a dance about architecture. I think that could be very interesting. Uh, And that's my own personal opinion, you know? Uh, And it, it doesn't make his statement any less true in a way if you see what I'm saying there. Right. I think it's both true and yet, uh, no, I would watch a dance about that. So that was sort of the start. The The idea was that I also did this really cool thing called Picnic Operetta up here in uh, the Twin Cities. And it was uh, a performance of a classical opera, but then the opera was also mixed in with a more modern music. So we did, um, one year we did... Um, We did some, a Purcell opera, Henry Purcell opera. I think it was King Arthur. And then we paired that with like Jimmy Cliff reggae music. Very wild pairing, right? Yeah. But um, it worked and it was fun. And then the audience got to eat food. Since it was a picnic, we would bring little hors d'oeuvres and little things for people to eat. And that was fun. And I I always kind of thought, well, that's cool. But, you know, is there any reason you're giving people you know, ginger beer at this point in the show? Like, why Why are you doing that? Other than just like it's something that's pretty allergen-free and cheap and easy to carry. Well, it's heavy, but, you know, like why, why are we serving these people this food with this music? And so it started a, a several-year trend of me trying to find funding for this really random idea uh, because I knew I could not... Uh, You know, it's easy to pay, you know, several musicians to put together a concert and then send audio to 100 people live, right? Right. But if you have to feed 100 people, that's a lot of food. hundred Like even if you're giving them small amounts of food, that's still a lot of food. There's a lot of expenses there. And then most likely a lot of the food is prepared off site. You know, there's a lot of steps to that. So I knew it was going to be quite a budget. And I applied for several grants. And I'm kind of happy that it took several years uh, before I finally received funding because it really allowed me to refine what I was looking for and my own description of that. Um, And not only that, I was, you know, getting better as a musician. So by the time I won the Artist Initiative grant for the 2017 fiscal year, I was, you know, totally prepared to um, commit to this project and it went phenomenally. Um, people can check it out if they want to at www.acousticcuisine.co. Acousticcuisine.co. Unfortunately, some jerk with a blank Tumblr page owns the com. Of course. So, uh, yeah. So until we make a lot more money off of this, we're going to be one letter short there. <laughs> um, but no, it was it was a great experience. It was a great little mini um, documentary about it up there, and all the music from the event was recorded and is up there, and you can listen and see what food was paired with it. And um, it was a really great experience. I uh, found a lot of inspiration in uh, going to the restaurant that I worked with in this case, Cafe Alma and Restaurant Alma. Uh, a really um, incredible restaurant, Uh, I believe they're James Beard nominated, Um, incredible team there, and they actually allowed me to stage in their kitchen, and for those of you that don't know, as I didn't know, stage means uh, sort of apprentice, you sort of hang out and do whatever they tell you, but then they feed you food, um, so you can try out the finished product, and they had me like plucking stinging nettle leaves, right? And even with these gloves, I'm getting my – and you know and even with my calluses, I'm like, whatever. I have calluses. I can handle a little stinging nettle. Oh, my hands got tore up. But that was – there was their bit of hazing. And so then after that, they just gave me a, all the delicious food I could eat. Um, and it was great. It was a great way to taste some of their food and see some of their processes and uh, help come up with a menu with the chef I worked with. Um and then from there, sort of seeing these dishes and tasting them, and saying, "Okay, how how do I want to approach this musically?" And um, you know, I, I didn't want every song to be like, "Oh, well, this is going to be representing the rice in this dish, and this is going to represent the chicken." And this, you know, I wanted there to be a little more subtlety than that. And so there there was the first song is a, a very very simple sort of like ricotta flatbread, and so every instrument in the ensemble of seven musicians represented an element of the dish. But then Mm. the next song, Harvest Waltz, was um, more about the time of year that it was when the performance was. So we were able to use seasonal ingredients in what we dubbed an autumn roll. And so I'm sure you've heard of a spring roll if you've been to a Vietnamese restaurant. And So this was kind of uh, the autumnal version of that. And so as opposed to having like a literal translation of the ingredients into the instruments, this was much more about just sort of the story of the theme of maybe what these flavors sort of inspired and made you envision when you eat, ate it. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity to just ha- tackle, tackle how you might uh, listen to something while eating these this, this food. And it was a really, really
0: fun challenge for me. This is a recording of Greg's Harvest Waltz from his Acoustic Cuisine project. This accompanied an autumn roll that was served during the playing of the tune. We'll enjoy a few minutes of this and then get back to our chat.
1: You know, it's funny. I was actually doing a little composing right before this, and I think there's there's several ways that myself personally, I can get into a composition. And one of them is just simply being empty. And if I allow creativity to wash over me, right, if I allow that space in me, I'm just going to hear melodies in my head because my head's just going. Something will pop in there. Right. You know, it might not be a fully... Th- fully fleshed out mozart symphony but that sort of just if i make space things can come but another way is having a boundary right as opposed to starting from nothing and trying to create something incredible having some sort of reference some sort of guideline and and with that strictness in staying inside that boundary you actually create more feasible options because you're not scared of the infinite possibility available to you.
0: Right. right. Yeah. Dr. And Wallace so, talks about that, where he talks about, you know, choosing your constraints wisely. Um, if, if I'm going to write something instead of just sitting here, staring at infinity, how am I, how am I going to constrain myself to leave enough room for creativity, but to push myself toward like an actual thing rather than just you know, endless possibilities.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And the more I do these electrify your strings and the more I go into schools, you know, on my own and work with children on improvisation, the more I find that, you know, it's so important to encourage them to not judge themselves with that initial improvisation. And I feel that uh especially at younger ages that's there's a lot of mental blockage with improvisation you know and i think this is in a similar vein um that can that can really get in the way um a lot of musicians you know we start out reading off the page we start out um just sort of seeing you know it's very play what's in front of you, fit into the orchestra, this sort of thing. And that's a great skill and maybe good in school when you have to deal with 80, 100 kids at a time, but true musicianship is understanding the language of music, you know? And um, I think you can, you know, teach that in larger settings too, but um, I'm digressing.
0: Yeah, I mean, talk about your your journey on that. You said you started out in Suzuki and then you ended up in in a... In a really non-traditional, uh more of a hyper creative type field. What what was your journey on that?
1: Well, I guess we got we have all the time we need for me to tell my story here, huh? That's right. Right? Yeah. Um so yes, I started very young. I'm very lucky my parents enrolled me in Suzuki uh, cello method at two and a half years old. I wouldn't believe it, except that there's, you know, pictures, picture proof of me like playing this thing no bigger than a viola, you know, it's pretty funny. That's awesome. And it's interesting because it means I don't remember a time where I wasn't playing music. And therefore I've realized that to me, it it is just as viable and speakable a language as is English for me. It's just as native of a tongue and growing up, Um, I did what all young cellists do in the sense of they go to orchestra and, you know, I had private lessons and I worked on my classical pieces and by about high school, I, you know, had become more of my own person and was listening to all the great nineties bands, Offspring and Metallica and, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, you know, there's a little real big fish mixed in there too. And, you know, um, it's a very teenager music, so. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I got to orchestra 15 minutes early, that's what my friends and I would want to play. We wouldn't practice, you know, the Brahms or the Shostakovich. We would, like, play Californication. That's what we want. You know what I mean? that's We figured out how to play that little line, you know, and um, that was great. That's That's what we wanted to do. And so I saw this dichotomy really emerge of what I was practicing for these, you know, classical cello things. And then what I was listening to on the radio, what I was listening to on Napster and, you know, good old Napster before it got shut down the right. first time. Um, so, yeah, and there was this just this big um, chasm there in my mind of these two things. And I didn't really understand why that was the case. Um And so it sort of further progressed in the sense that a trombone playing friend of mine in my high school's jazz band, one day I was practicing and he came and he put down a trombone chart in front of me and said, hey, play this, you know. So I played it and he's like, you should come to jazz band today. And so um, I was lucky enough to attend a private school for high school. And so he was the only trombone player in the band. So they were definitely in need of some people to read those parts. So I got to to play some of that and and the teacher was very um, open to the idea, which is great. That doesn't always happen. So uh, that was a great way to get my toes wet in terms of jazz and improvisation and having an opportunity to do that sort of stuff even if I wasn't playing a traditional jazz instrument. And um, that was... The first sort of step, I guess, the next step, would have been going to Berkeley. They had a five-week program at Berkeley uh, College of Music in Boston that I attended uh, in the summer of 2003. Oh my, a while back now, <laughs> and so um, that was another great experience. You know, I had taken all these classical theory courses and learned all this figured base stuff and counterpoint and all these things, and that's all lovely and fine. But nobody had really ever explained to me like how to read a lead sheet, and if and so you know Berkeley was the first time Mimi Rabson over there, who's still teaching there. You know, I remember taking you know being in her group class, and she was like, "All right, here's autumn leaves." The first, here it says C-7. That means C minor 7. That means this chord. That means this scale. That means this mode in correlation with the F dominant and the B-flat major after it. And nobody had really put in the theoretical pieces together in a way that was playable. And that was the big thing. All the theory classes I had before that, you never had your instrument out. It was all just writing down a bunch of voice leading stuff, which is helpful and good and useful, but to integrate it with playing, to have somebody say, this is, this is this, this is how you under, here's the vocabulary, uh, for how to improvise over this. This is the scale. This is the chord. This is how it's all correlated. was a major break breakthrough point for me. That was huge. Um, especially as a, I think as a cellist, you know, no other teachers were really talking to me about that stuff. Nobody's going to talk to me about that stuff in orchestra. They didn't want me to do my thing. They wanted me to fit in with 11 other cellists. Right. I mean, because a composer
0: has already gone to the trouble to write all this stuff and figure out how these things fit together.
1: Exactly. And so I think it's, It's a little bit of a shame. I think it's so much more powerful when you can theoretically understand a piece and understand how how the harmony functions on an intellectual level. It means that when you execute, you understand, you know, the notes you're going for. You can hear them in your head before you play them. You can really truly get a, a feel for where the song harmonically is trying to lead you and the important points or the not-so-important points, you know, all emerge when you understand that on a theoretical level. Absolutely. So, um, but back to me, uh, <laughs> so then I I was very lucky. Uh, I got offered um, a great scholarship to attend University of Miami, and that's, you know, probably one of the top five jazz schools in the country still. Um, very incredible faculty. I was sort of at the tail end of a lot of very, um, tenured, uh, impressive musicians that had really been there in the, in the quote unquote university of Miami jazz heyday of the seventies. And so people like Jocko Pistorius and Pat Metheny were at the school at that time, which are, that's no slouch of names. Yeah, you know? for sure. It's, that's a, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. So, um, you know, some of my teachers had had been there when those cats had been there and had stories about them, and you know, it was it was a great a great place to learn how to be a side man.
0: Speaking of Miami, do you? Here's a tune called Rubidium Mind that was written by Greg while he was walking home one night in Miami. This is a live track from By Yourself, playing in a wine bar there in Miami.
1: So I did my four years at University of Miami and uh, summa cum laude. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, really expensive, arduous three words to earn, um, but worth it. And then spent a year freelancing in Miami, uh, decided I wanted to attend California Institute of the Arts to continue my training. And spent a year there in their performer composer program. And that was the start of me recognizing my individuality, not just as a performer, but as a composer and as an artist. University of Miami was a great learning ground for how to learn how to play salsa and be a solid classical musician and be a solid session musician, and be a solid church musician, you know, all these all these very useful skills. But there was never any emphasis on me exploring my own artistry and creativity outside of just improvising over this jazz tune, right, that gets called on a gig. And CalArts is the perfect... Uh, or maybe just the best way to say it is it's the exact opposite. It's all about expressing yourself in your unique way and in a way that is truly unique, perhaps to the point of um, doing things that are not so consonant, if you will. So, you know, there were a lot of performers there that, you know, I've seen some of the best recitals of my life There at CalArts, I also saw some of the most questionable recitals of my life at CalArts. And that was sort of the challenge there. It It was quite a mixed bag. I was very grateful I went after getting my undergrad. I had much more of a sense of who I was, what I was trying to, you know, obtain from the experience. But still, I really anticipated my University of Miami experience and how I was able to connect with the city of Miami and the music community there, I thought that it would be a similar situation in Los Angeles with CalArts. And unfortunately, that really was not true. Uh, it, I didn't realize how you know distant it was from downtown LA, and some of the leads that had developed from simply being a good musician at University of Miami never really appeared in Los Angeles. And I sort of saw, while, while it was a great opportunity for me to sort of explore what I wanted to do as a singer and a composer and all this other stuff, um, I knew there wasn't a long-term future for me in LA if I wanted to solely survive off of my music. And it wasn't that I didn't have the talent, it's that it, it's not about the talent, it's about being connected and having the network of people that are going to call you when they need a cellist to record for a film score or a cellist to record for a commercial or what have you, you know? And so being on those contractors' call lists is not an easy place to get on. There's a lot of people in LA that want to be on that list and more and more keep moving there. Right, And, and it's not that I couldn't have done it, but I... I was like, I know how long this is going to take. I know how hard I'm going to work. And I need to find a different pond, you know, to be a bigger fish in, pretty much. Because this is, you know, everybody out here is looking for connections and funding, myself included. And so I was like, this this is not the place to be for me right now. And um, through a search of basically trying to investigate you know, what the best music scenes were in the, in the country, I came across Minneapolis and most, you know, a lot of people are like, why'd you move to Minneapolis from LA? Everybody does the opposite of that. Why would you do that? You know? And well, there's a lot of reasons. I have a great lifestyle out here. Um, I have a great cost of living. It's very affordable. It is a great art scene uh per capita one of the best in the country unquestionably there's great grant support i was able to fund acoustic cuisine simply because i lived here and applied for a statewide grant you know that w- m- probably wouldn't have been possible in a lot of other states um i uh love the way of life it's much more calm i mean la is pretty chill but i don't have to be stuck in traffic for 5 hours a day when oh, i'm my here goodness a traffic jam here is, you know, maybe it takes 40 minutes to get across town, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty doable. It's even the worst of times. It's, it's very doable. And so I, I have a great situation here. I'm, I'm very happy that I decided to come to a city that, you know, most people probably poo poo and say, Oh, it's so, how do you stand the cold? I, I get a coat. I buy a coat. (laughs) Shocking. It's so difficult. And then you buy a good coat and you have that for five years and you stay warm when it gets cold. And now it's spring and sunny and beautiful and everything's in bloom and it's the perfect weather. You know, it's amazing here. And um, on top of that, you know, I was able to create a lot of opportunities. There are some phenomenal cellists in town, but I also am very distinct in what I do and have over the past eight years really been able to cement myself as – you know, a premier musician, a premier cellist in town, a solid educator, and you know, I think when you're like me and you're doing your best to be at a national and an international level, you know, it's not you don't have to spend every single day where you live, but you got to have a place that you love to come home to, and I love to come home to Minneapolis. I absolutely love to come home here, so it's it's fantastic. And and here we are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: here we are. This is a tune called Not This Time, also by By Yourself. It was inspired by several breakups in Greg's life, romantic and musical. It's meant to be an optimistic take on moving forward after a challenging event. This was all done live in front of a camera in one take. Look for a really cool video on Greg's YouTube page after this podcast. <laughs>
3: let down but there's nothing i can change i'm standing on my own now without you in the way hey. i'm scared of what will be now but i don't know what's left to say because this time when i make my bright sun
0: talk a little bit about this group. The group is called By Yourself, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And Which is a play um, on your last name. Absolutely. Greg Byers. Uh, but it also is sort of an expression of myself trying to produce my own work and do something admittedly selfish. And as somebody that really has been a sideman for a long time, I really had to force myself to be the front person, to be the creator leading the charge and making this project happen. And I'm very happy I did. And it may, may, may sound silly to to put it like that, but it's true. Uh, a lot of the work I do is for commercial purposes, whether that's um, doing weddings or corporate events or, you know, well, the education stuff is great. You know, that's a different sector. But, um... I just found myself not really doing many original projects. And if it had to be me by myself sort of like leading the charge on my original music, then that's what I was going to do. The cool thing is it's very mutable. The ensemble can really change depending on how I feel. And I have such sort of a disparate palette of music of all sorts of different styles that from concert to concert, it can change a lot. So what we did at the last show, we played at the Black Dog Cafe in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it was part of the Illicit Jazz Series there. Steve Kenny, a phenomenal trumpet player in in the Twin Cities jazz scene, hosts that event, and he asked me to put together a bit of a larger group, maybe with some horns. And I'm a huge fan of Blue Note-era jazz. And, you know, there's no cellos on there, there's no violins, but there's lots of bassists. And a lot of really, really great music. Uh, And so I shaped that show to be more of a jazz quintet. So a lot of it I was playing upright bass or bass guitar. And then we were doing some of my arrangements of um, various jazz standards. I I redid Seven Steps to Heaven and Molten Glass and just some other jazz tunes. And, uh, you know, like we were talking about, it was great. I took one solo in the first set. You know how much fun that was for me? Just playing bass, holding it down. I picked all the tunes, just letting the horn players shred. Like, that's that's a great feeling for me, you know? So um, it was a really, really fun show. Uh, Javier and L.A. were there. Uh, so it was the trio, and we did a couple things that featured the trio. But then we had Adam Meckler on trumpet and Aaron Hedenstrom on saxophone and flute. And um, it was just a super, super fun night, a one-off sort of performance. And a testament to the fact that uh, it really is a changing project and, and I don't want it to be stagnant. I want to be able to add musicians and subtract musicians and still have the core of the music there. So it's it's a really fun challenge from show to show um, how it's going to be presented. So uh, I want to share with uh, you and with everyone else uh, a live cut. It's not exactly the most pristine audio, but I think it captures the vibe of that evening. And it's on an original tune that I call Diversion. Awesome. Yeah, and I think we're going to sneak in. I have a bass guitar solo in here, so hopefully we can sneak that in Perfect. with whatever edit we do.
0: That's right. We'll, we'll put the bass guitar solo in here so everybody will know it's time to go get something to eat.
1: Come on, (laughs) come on, man.
0: So I want to pick up on something that you said about mostly being a side guy, and then sort of forcing yourself to be the the headliner, right? I mean, I find myself mm. in a similar position. I've been a side guy in bands for years, and um, because I'm only like 19 or something. But um, definitely. But it, yeah, so talk about what is it that's that driving force behind saying, you know. I've contributed so much to other people's music, but there's there's this itch I've got to scratch as far as just, this is going to be my statement.
1: I think it stems from this balance that as a professional musician, you have to find, and that's make, making music a career forces you to sort of draw a line around, well, I need to make money off of this. I'm going to do what it takes to make a living off of this. And, and that's sort of something that for me, when I left high school, I knew. I was like, I... I had done some, like, fast food gigs, right? And had they had driven me insane. And I was like, I have to make a living doing music. And I don't know what that means. I don't know how I'm going to do that. But I have to make a living doing musical things. And I'm going to swear to myself that I'm going to do that. And that required me to do some things that are outside of my expertise, right? I've taught middle school rock band after school with, you know, um... And, and that was a very, very difficult time but I needed the work and, and that was presented to me and I said yes, right? Because I I wanted to do that. But that wasn't musically satisfying. Did it pay all right? Yeah, sure. But it, it wasn't expressing myself. It wasn't cathartic in the way that creating music for me and, and improvising is. And as I became more established as a career musician, I started to notice how little of that was actually in my life and that when people were asking like, oh, can I come to a show? You know, what show can I come to? And I'd look at my calendar and I'd be like, okay, well, here's a wedding, so you can't come to that. And here's a recording session, you can't come to that. And here's this other thing, you you know, this is private, uh, okay. Or it's, you know, I'm, I'm playing like, bass and a salsa band at this cafe like well that's cool but that's really like niche sort of like thing you know where do I hear your music and I was like uh uh, on SoundCloud yeah (laughs) you know and so um I had an iteration of this trio back in 2016 2017 I was working with a drummer Rodney Ruckus and Javier Santiago was also also the keyboard player in that And Rodney is a very charismatic, outgoing fellow. And he was on a mission. You know, he had never heard anybody play cello like I did. And I could hang with him. And he's a pretty bombastic drummer, a la Art Blakey, very jazz-oriented. And, um, you know, I could hang with him. And I don't think a lot of people can hang with him jazz-wise. And so the three of us uh, decided we were going to do it a bit of a mini tour and recorded an album together and all these things. And, um, that eventually disbanded and overall it was a positive experience. I'm very, you know, happy I did, but it was, it was not all easy. You know, obviously if we did one tour and then haven't ever played together again, it wasn't perfect, you know? Um, and that's okay. But I, I did that and the whole tour was all, Originals of ours or jazz songs we wanted to do. And I, I, my chops were phenomenal. I really felt that my playing was at a really high level because we were going out every night and I was playing really hard songs that challenged me every single evening with, you know, consummate musicians. And I realized after that had, you know, disappeared, like, whoa am I, I don't have this in my life anymore. And it came to a point of, you know, for however much I do the commercial thing and the make the money thing, I have to be happy with what I'm doing to some degree. And so I have to take some time to build a project that I can take ownership of, you know, and, and, even for a fiscal sense, right? As a sideman, you never know when your next gig's coming. You never know, you know? And you can be, I don't, I'm not going to name names, but um, there's a a musician uh, that's more, you know, in the Minnesota scene that I had worked with for several years and I was sick for a rehearsal And didn't tell them I was sick until, you know, it was like an early morning rehearsal. And I sort of like messaged them like the morning of like, hey, I'm feeling really bad. Can't do this rehearsal. Um, They were very stressed out over this big show. There was a big CD release. And they essentially not only fired me from that gig but have not called me and are working with other cellists now over just because I got sick one day. And decided, you know, I better not go in. Uh... I better not go in and get this person sick. So, um, you know, it's it's temperamental. We're, we're a temperamental bunch, you know. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, so basically job security is kind of like your ability to go out and say, I have this product that I can I can push.
1: Abs- exactly. Um, and when you're a sideman, you never know what one thing is going to set you off. When I was working with Davina and the Vagabonds, that was a great gig, but um, it was a salaried gig. You know, it was steady. But then when I left that, I had nothing else. And why didn't I have anything else? Because I committed everything to that, you know, to, to touring with them, to being a full-time musician with them. And so as a sideman, you 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 know, uh, you're always waiting for that next call. You may have had a great show and a great run of shows or a great whatever, Um, but it's never going to be enough to compensate you for the rest of your life. And so you're always sort of hungry for that next thing. Whereas when it's your own project, you have ownership of it. And, uh, if, if, you know, if I don't release an album this year, the only person I have to blame is myself. Right. And I'm, I'm okay with that. If, you know, I know that I'm working towards that goal, you know, around all the other stuff I'm doing. So. For me it was it was really important, you know, I kind of look at, you know, we talked about acoustic cuisine, so the reason I didn't become a chef is because I liked food too much, right? And I didn't want to have to go to work and make other people's food and be running around a kitchen for 12 hours and then have to come home and think about what to eat. I knew my life would suck. You know, I just like food too much. I just want to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it and not worry about preparing it for a million other people. And now when I cook at home, I can really like cook food, you know, and be great at it and cook it for the people I care for you know, and I have that great relationship. With music, it started out, like I said, as something that I didn't even have a choice in. I was just started in this. So I had to come to a point of like, well, why am I still doing this other than it's my career and I'm good at it, right? Why why am I really doing this? Why am I truly doing this? And the more I incorporate that into my schedule and into my life, the more I can really savor the other things that aren't that, especially the stuff that's more commercial or the stuff that, you know, I'm just slotted into a role, you know, and right. then I do those more commercial things and I can take that money and then pay for the studio sessions to record my new album or pay to fly Javier out to Minnesota for a gig or any of those things.
0: Right. Right. Well hey, let, let me ask you a sort of a different question. As a guy who was uh classically and sort of more traditionally trained, but is now operating in a much more improvisational type space. What is, what do your practice sessions look like now versus maybe what a traditional session celloist, a guy who's gonna come in and read a book? You know, what what are some differences between your practice session and theirs?
1: Like when I'm practicing on my own? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. So for me, a lot of what practice boils down to now is simply what's coming up in my schedule. And as a multi-instrumentalist, that can be a very wide ranging spectrum. So the audio we heard from the Black Dog Cafe, I was playing bass on that. I just had to get my chops up and my calluses up on my fingers to be able to play a full two hours of music on bass. And I know that sounds silly, but I do a lot of other things. And so I really had to build endurance to play upright bass. And that might be like, okay, that's my practice for a couple weeks. Um, and Some other times, um, something I work on a lot is singing and playing. I really like to develop... My ability to separate those two things and yet still really make sure they're in tune. I'm singing with good tone, playing with good technique, all those sorts of things. It's, uh, uh, I, I used to think that singing and playing was a matter of practicing singing, practicing playing, and then you just stick them together and that's fine. Except it's not fine. Not at all. Right. You, you know, and for me, I really have to hash out how every little thing is going to fit into this grid of music and time going by. So sometimes I'll really slow things down in order to think like, note, pluck, pluck, note, you know, rest, whatever, breathe, um, to really line up how everything's going to click together. Um. You know, that's that's a big challenge and something that I definitely feel only comes through regular um, maintenance and practice and, and really being observant of what's flowing, what's not flowing. I guess some, some things that I would say I uh, pride myself in, in, my own practice routine, and suggest to my students. Uh, one thing is... Um, recording ourselves and listening back and it doesn't need to be something that's incredibly expensive. Everybody has a phone these days, you know, pull out that voice memo and just record yourself doing that thing and listen back. I personally have found that how I listen to myself in the moment versus how I listen to myself afterwards is a really completely different headspace. And it's been so powerful for me Becoming a recording artist, I still believe one of my greatest strengths is the ability to record music in the studio because it is such a different thing than playing music live and reacting to a live performance. And and um, it's a skill set, just like playing in an orchestra is a skill set, just like improvising is a skill set. So um, not being afraid to listen to yourself and your sound and you can, you can highlight the flaws as well as, you know, the things that were done well, but you don't have to beat yourself up about it. We're all at where we're at, you know? And if you want to get better at it, well, keep trying it and keep recording yourself. And it's pretty shocking. If you record yourself playing a passage, I guarantee you you're going to like how you sound the 50th time you record it. Yeah. You know, if you do it 50, and like I'm, I will be the first to admit when I'm working on things, I'll do a hundred takes on a pass of something because I am that demanding. I have that high of a level of expectation of what I want it to sound like. And I can go back when I'm recording myself and listen away from playing the in- instrument and be truly judgmental of my own playing as to whether it was the level I'm expecting of myself or not. That's really powerful. That's really, really powerful no matter what level you're at, that ability to self-assess. For sure. Right? So that's that's a huge element for me. I would say another thing, uh, you know, I think that sets my practice routine apart is some of the stuff I went over in this intermediate improvisation clinic we were talking about at the beginning of this, um, I have several tricks for uh, practicing songs if there are challenging chord progressions. And one of those is to take... You have you first have to understand, you know, the chords of the song that you're trying to practice, and then you need to know the scales that relate to those chords. And then what we do, we go in, and we're going to start on a note and play uh, sequentially, scale-wise, up whatever scale is occurring in whatever measure, But time is passing as well. And so let's say I'm playing quarter notes, right? Um, Let's just take autumn leaves as an example, right? So um, let's say we're in E minor. So the first chord's A minor. So A minor, I'm going to start on an A. A, B, C, D. Now we're on a D chord, D dominant. I'm going to keep going, staying in the D dominant scale. E, F sharp, G A. Now we're on a G major, so I'm going to keep going in G major. B, C, D, E. I'm going to keep ascending until I hit whatever boundary I sort of place on myself. Essentially how high you want to go on the instrument. Right. Right? Because the low boundary is the lowest note you can play, obviously, right? So I'm forcing myself to ascend continually, then descend continually, voice leading, along the chord scales that are passing through time. And hopefully that made sense, what I just said to people. Yeah, totally. Because it's a really, really powerful exercise. It's actually fairly advanced. There are simpler ways to break it down. Um, And, uh, you know, you can do the same exercise essentially with chord tones. It starts by just being able, can you play the chord tones over a measure, Right. A, C, E, G, D, F sharp, A, C, G, B, D, F sharp, right? But that's very like cookie cutter chords. That's not like, cha- I mean, that is a challenge to some people, of course. And if that is, that's okay. Start there.
0: But that's 101. But,
1: yes, that's 101. That's not creative, right? With this exercise that I just explained, we can start on any note of our instrument, and we're going to create a different scenario and a different variation on this exercise. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And so um, having a method to internalize the harmonic movement of a piece of music, right, is critical if we're going to freely improvise over it. And so that's my big thing. I really, if I'm going to play a piece, I don't want to have to look at a piece of music. I want to have it memorized, so I can really be present in the moment. You know, even as a bass player, I don't want to be thinking about like, oh, what am, what chord am I playing next? I want to be listening to the soloist, right. listening to what's happening, and reacting. Uh, and. Really ingraining the harmonic movement in a way other than like one, three, five, seven, one, three, five, seven, right? right? It's so static, just like when we practice classical scales and we start on the root and we ascend and we stop on the root and we descend. Like we gotta break it up. We have right. to really, you know, and, and so a lot of my practice routines when I'm doing scales and chords, I'm not looking at Klangle. Sorry, Klangle, it's all in my head, dude. I can come up with more exercises than you could ever write down in your book because I understand, you know, the 12 major scales, the 12 minor scales, several modes that create way more major and minor scales, right? All sorts of things. Um, That, you know, understanding that in my head and practicing off of that is far more, more valuable to me than staring at a page and just regurgitating it and not really understanding what I'm doing or why. Right.
0: And And that's that's how you get away from doing math and get into doing art, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, exactly. And so to me, you know, we practice the theoretical side. We practice the intellectual, you know, regimen so that we can make it an emotional, a spiritual thing when we improvise that we can sort of make it unconscious, turn off our brain and forget all of this stuff we worked to learn because it's just there, right? And I was uh, working with one of my friends is doing a Suzuki violin recital and she's a very progressive violinist in the Twin Cities and her kids improvise. And I was super, super blown away. One of them you know got up to improvise over they were doing like jazzy lightly row right oh yeah da, 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 da. You, you can you can imagine imagine the beauty um and so this violinist was improvising and i don't think she realized it but she was doing such beautiful phrasing you know a lot of beginning violinists you know or string players they know what notes to play but they can't ever stop because they feel like something's wrong if they've stopped, right? And so she did a great job of playing a phrase and then leaving space. And that is such a powerful thing. It really is. Understanding when to take breaths in your phrase, just like me talking, you know. I've had to breathe here, so I have to understand where to phrase it.
0: Yeah, I think horn players learn that sooner than string players do, just out of necessity.
1: Unquestionably. Horn players, wind players, you know, unquestionably. So... Um, that's something that maybe that had been told to her. Maybe it hadn't. I, I'd like to think that she unconsciously understood that it would be a better improvisation if she didn't try to force it. And if when it came to a natural conclusion, she just took her bow off the string. And that's pretty mature for like a 12 year old, you know,
0: sometimes it's pretty mature for a 30 year old.
1: That is also very true. Yes, <laughs> very true. Very true. So, um, you know, I really try to incorporate a lot of, of technology, modern styles, improvisation into my practice regimen. And um, nevertheless, it starts with I, – I really try to start with working on my intonation as a string player. And it's something that, you know, ever since I've really only been in classical – Um, I've wanted to continue to improve. And to me, that is playing scales with drones and having a a fundamental pitch to match the notes I'm playing off of. Because what is pitch outside of its relativity, right? 99% of the population could not tell me if I was playing an A440 or an A445, okay? So therefore, right, what is intonation? It's how that A relates to the root beneath it, right? And so um, playing with drones, playing with a recorded track where I can compare my own pitch and my instrument's pitch to, you know, a a fundamental note, that is huge. And I I take it very slowly to really concentrate on my technique, tone, intonation, Get those things solid at a slow speed. I consider it the Tai Chi of my cello practice, right? Because, you know, you think of what's Tai Chi in the martial arts world? It's very slow, soft. It's all about how we're doing things, slowing it down to get inside the minutia of it and make sure every movement is impeccable. Right. And so I start my practice routine, not with the flashy stuff and not with the 8 million notes, voice leading over all sorts of crazy scales. No, I start very simply as a warm up, really trying to lock in on my intonation, my tone, my technique. So that once again, I'm setting up good habits for the rest of my practice, the rest of my performance.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Good information. I think that's a good,
1: good start on the spiel, you know,
0: Well, hey, man, thanks so much for chatting with me. Um, Let's give people some contact information. Where can they find you?
1: Absolutely. If you want to go online to cellogreg.com, C-E-L-L-O-G-R-E-G.com, you know, a lot of good stuff on the website, lots of different links and such. Uh, If you want to check me out on the social media, I'm mostly an Instagram user, so that's at a cellogreg. You know, yeah, like we talked about earlier, Acoustic Cuisine has its own website, www.acousticcuisine.co and then By Yourself has I mean really the cool thing about By Yourself no one else has that title no one else is messing with that so if you just google By Yourself my stuff comes up awesome
0: it's always nice always nice well
1: fantastic well, you. yeah
0: it's been a great chat good to see you again uh, on the screen this time but um, yeah. hopefully again in person I guess in July
1: in july uh you know wish we could make it sooner but matt always a pleasure great talking with you great uh great hanging and um yeah let's let's stay in touch my friend yeah man
0: wonderful Woo! that's another episode in the books thanks so much for hanging out with us we've got more awesome artists coming up soon so stay tuned for more rock star violinists